The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, very warm welcome to this Wednesday edition of Squawk Box with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Asia following Wall Street higher after U.S. stocks notch their, their second best day of the year as the Fed Chair Jerome Powell signals the central bank is ready to ease if necessary in the face of the trade war. We are closely monitoring the implications of these de developments for the U.S. economic outlook and, as always, we will act as appropriate to sustain the expansion with a strong labor market and inflation near our symmetric 2% objective. Meanwhile, on day two of the state visit, President Trump talks up the special relationship between the U.S. and Britain as he continues his state visit to the U.K., playing down differences over Huawei and promising a great post-Brexit trade deal. The United States is committed to a phenomenal trade deal between the U.S. and the U.K. There is tremendous potential in that trade deal. I say probably two and even three times of what we're doing right now. Trump pushes forward with plans to slap tariffs on imports from Mexico, despite opposition from within the Republican Party, ahead of last-ditch talks between US and Mexican officials. Italy's coalition leaders compromise as Matteo Salvini and Luigi Di Maio agreed to work together in the interests of political stability following weeks of tension. Oh, it's oh so simple, isn't it? The markets have decided that the Fed's going to save them, they're going to cut rates, and everything's going to be fine. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that, but let's fill in the backstory. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has signaled the central bank's willingness to ease monetary policy, saying it will respond, quote, as appropriate to the risks posed by a trade war. Speaking in Chicago, Powell said the Federal Reserve doesn't know how or when tensions will be resolved but that it is closely monitoring their impact on markets. Well, hang on a second. On markets or on data as well? Because we're not market-driven, are we, Karen? We're data-driven. Very nice to see you, by the way, rather than looking down the lens and assuming you're at the other exactly. end. Exactly. Nice to see you in studio, away from all the Trump protesters. Uh, what we've got on markets was uh, support coming through for those measures unveiled by Powell, a step away from being patient, suggesting something <laughs> a little bit more dovish than a patient Fed at this point. And you can see the green splashing up on the boards, more than 2% bounce for the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq. Second best trading session for this year. And you might say, well, how much was behind it? It was on volume. We saw the amount of transactions taking place, a fairly high level, 6.28 billion shares traded versus the 50-day average of about 5.7. So very decent on those levels. When it comes to the Dow, a couple of big moving stocks, Goldman Sachs and Apple, so two very different parts of the market. Don't forget banks are looking for a little bit more activity behind the scenes and a real read into the US economy. Apple technology, and technology has been hit in the last couple of sessions because of the risk of swings, but also with further probes from a couple of regulators in the states from the FTC and the DOJ. So technology led all sectors and that was reflected in what we saw on the Nasdaq, this gain of 2.6% that outperformed the other major averages. Banks though also moving higher with uh, the KBE and KRE posting their best day 
of 2019. So a couple of undercurrents here for this market if you're looking for support bases. When it comes to yields, we did see a move in some of these yields as well. Higher, would you believe? 2.11 is what we have on the US 10-year yield. Uh, that's a, a march up from the 2.10 level, 1.86 at the short end of the curve. As investors start to readjust their assessment around the interest rate curve, the likelihood now of a Fed rate cut this year. Don't forget there's been a gap between what the market has been expecting and a lot of the big banks just moving very, very quickly in the last week or so to change their assumptions. JP Morgan, for instance, was one that did not anticipate a rate hike until out, a rate cut, I should say, or any move but right out until the end of next year. And what we've got now is a rate cut priced in for this year. Uh, the U.S. bank stocks, this is uh, how it was reflected in the trade yesterday. Very strong for the likes of City, more than 5% North, Bank of America in the same region, and Morgan Stanley, 4.3% firmer. U.S. technology names, uh, let's take a look at the big ones. I, I mentioned Apple already as a big mover for the Dow, and you can see uh, as uh, across on these charts, that was a gain of 3.6%, outpaced by Twitter at the other end of the boards, 4.8%, Netflix, very strong in session, and Tesla, well and truly on pressing on the accelerator, more than 8% gain for that stock. The Asian markets picking up on this very strong run from Wall Street have bounced into the green, 380 plus points for the Japanese stock market. The Nikkei gaining almost 1.9%. Chinese stocks are trade strong from Hong Kong to Shanghai, six tenths of a percent. Uh, clearly still a tariff threat, but the fact that the central bank is now leaning into the ramifications and looking at a rate cut possibly to mitigate against uh, some of the, the chance of a recession is uh, well and truly positive for many of these markets. And uh, the interest rate differential, of course, very much looked at for implications on the dollar and what that would mean for the emerging markets if you have a slightly weaker dollar now. So the Australian market, half of a percent higher. The opening calls in Europe as we get set up for the trading session. We are chasing green arrows, seven on the FTSE, 23 on the DAX, 11 on the French market, 41 on Italian stocks. But uh, I dare say the data is going to be very important. We started out the way talking about US inflation break-evens and the ISM data. Just how wide the slowdown has been away from manufacturing to services today could be quite All key right. for markets. Well, well, just someone remind me here. Uh, uh, just, by the way, we've got Michelle uh, Girard with us as well from uh, <laughs> NatWest Capital Markets. How are NatWest Markets, I should say, oh, Chief Economist? How, how are you? Very well, thanks. Good, good, good. Look, look, someone remind me again what two-thirds of the U.S. economy is. Is it, is it manufacturing? No. It's, it's, it's something else. It's like something to do with us <laughs> buying stuff, it's, yeah? It's exactly. That's, oh, it's the consumer. So the consu uh, let's just shake this up. They've, they've got a rundown. I'm ignoring that. Uh, um, so two-thirds of the U.S. economy is a consumer, yeah? Mm -hmm. And what do the Americans buy? They buy goods, they buy services, they buy car cars, they buy cars. Anyone see what the light, manuf light vehicle sales were on Monday? Oh, yes. Anyone see strong. that one? Because we're Very in such strong. a crisis situation <laughs> on two-thirds of the American economy. What, what were they up? 17.3 million on an annualized basis compared right. with the estimate for 16.9 right. touching some of the highest levels we've seen and we're in crisis levels where we need to be cutting rates well i have to agree with you in the sense that what is ailing the u.s economy is is not tight money so there's a, a very good argument that it that cutting rates wouldn't necessarily help in the sense that it isn't that isn't the problem with the U.S. economy. It's a confidence issue. It's the concern that the seeds of, of of uncertainty that are being sown will weigh on business and ultimately cause you know cause consumers to be undermined if businesses stop hiring. That this the strength of the consumer won't be sustained. You know, there's this delicious thing. Let's do the cross-transatlantic comparisons here. Not the British, because we're in a right mess in many ways at the moment. But the Germans, when they get zero interest rates or negative rates, what do they do? 
they don't spend a penny. In fact, yeah. they save more. They save more. They go double-digit big time. The British and the Americans, when they get low interest rates, well, hey, we're off to the markets. <laughs> we'll buy back stock as well. Oh, right, That's right. all we're going to do. We're going right. to gear up and buy back stock. There is a cultural difference between what low interest rates mean for some parts of the world, uh, and let's face it, us Anglo-Saxon economists. I mean, the president's negative. right. The special relationship right. is we all spend a load of money when rates are low. But low versus negative, big difference, right? If you look yes. at the US 10-year yield versus German bonds, <clears> so you've got negative versus still positive. And sure. one of the big points of discussion last night, do we now have rates starting to climb back towards that zero mark, what we've got pretty much in Europe? And, you know, if you look at the potential for yields in the States to decline from a 2% handle closer to a 1% handle, is there a chance of that? Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, if you think about the fact that we're already seeing rates moving to levels, pricing in an aggressive, I think, you know, rate-cutting strategy, you, you sort of have to start to wonder, and particularly in the 10-year part of the curve, the longer, how much lower rates can go. What's more likely to happen is that shorter-term rates, two-year yields, for example, is where we'll really start to see the move now so that the declines will actually, in yields, will be more front and low. The yield curve will be steepening. Let me just do a straw poll of three rational people, well, two rational ladies and plus myself, if rates are so low because people are worried about stuff, or you are, do your house, would you go out and spend more money if the Fed's, if everyone's telling you things are crisis? I don't. I save. I, right, I, I, exactly. I, I don't go out and spend more. Do you go and spend more money? No, I save as well. Yeah, if, if people right. are saying to me, whoa, I'm really worried. I'm going negative here. I'm going cray-cray. Yeah. I, I don't spend more money. I save more money because I've got less income. Right, but the, the idea, I think, what the Fed is trying to do is to alleviate the worries by suggesting that they're taking action not because they are seeing signs of recession, but they are avoiding. They're trying to act preemptively to avoid the signs of recession. Their hope is to inspire you to have more confidence, obviously, but that's a big communication challenge. Yeah, no, we're going to get to the communication now, but I just want to say this is how bad things are, all of you out there. This is fact, okay? This is the day. <laughs> U.S. unemployment rate is actually 3.6%. That's the latest figure we have. The U.S. core CPI, that's the one we're supposed to look at, yeah? 2.1%. That's on target. A U.S. real first quarter GDP, 3.1%. And you guys now think there's an 86% chance of a September rate cut? All right, let's move on. Federal Reserve Vice Chair, thanks for that, by the way, Michelle, <laughs> lovely. Uh, Federal Reserve Vice Chair Richard Clarida echoed Jerome Powell's comments. He told CNBC the U.S. economy is in good shape. Uh, but that the central bank is ready to act if, 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 you know, it's the conundrum, isn't it? It's the laconic challenge. If, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? No? Okay. Uh, conditions change. Speaking in an interview, Carida said he will be watching current market conditions to decide where the Fed should go next. Market pricing can go up and down, so we can't be handcuffed to that. But obviously, we'll look at a range of indicators on where the economy is. But again, it's very simple. We will put in place policies that need to be in place to keep the economy, which is in a very good place right now. And our job is to keep it there. Michelle, we're pretty used to the script being torn up, and I'm not just talking about squawk box. Uh, when it comes to markets lately, you know, this week was meant to play out where we had a lot of data crossing. The market starts to make up its mind about whether we should be risk on or risk off. It was quite a crucial week. And then we had the Fed talking, and it felt like the market did not wait for the data, almost to say it doesn't really matter. We know what the Fed's going to do. Right. So uh, not, let's not even bother waiting for the ISM out later today to give us a sense of how bad things are beyond manufacturing. Well, I think the thinking here is, is the data we're seeing 
seeing now are old news. It doesn't incorporate the impact of particularly this latest uh, pivot toward Mexico and the possibility of tariffs there, let alone maybe even the impact of the broader tariffs on China. So to some extent, the markets are discounting any, even if you, these car sales numbers that Steve mentioned, yes, they're strong now, but when these tariffs go on, if prices go up, if the costs be through the consumer, those numbers won't stay there. And so everyone is looking ahead and that's where you see the market anticipating that we'll get something so from tariffs the have got me well confused because I've looked at the customs data and I'm pretty sure it's American companies and individuals that are paying for the, yes. uh, the, 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 the tariffs rather than Chinese exporters. Maybe some of that's being passed on, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, when you get tariffs, you get some form of inflation coming through the system, but then you also get concerns about economic growth as well. So do tariffs lead to higher inflation, hence the Fed mm. has to stand pat, or do tariffs lead to economic deterioration, hence the Fed has to cut? Well, it's interesting because, Karen, well, you were mentioning break-evens, and, and they are falling. So inflation expectations, the markets are betting that the economic drag, the slower growth that will put downward pressure on prices, will more than offset the upward pressure that you might see from, from tariffs. I have to tell you, I'm more worried about the corporate profits business slowdown and the angle of this rather than the consumer hit or higher inflation. I don't I guess I'm more concerned that businesses will be forced to absorb the cost of the tariffs. They won't be able to pass the cost through to consumers. So it won't be an inflation story. It will be a corporate profits can, uh, can I just sneak story. in the fact that I'm more concerned that the market's more concerned about the fact they won't be able to have their buybacks anymore. Because every quarter we get these stunning buyback stats, and they are absolutely ginormous. I don't even think ginormous is a real word, but right. they are big. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is, I think it's huge. about buybacks. I think it's a huge, a huge, yes, yes, there's a word at the moment. A phenomenal, apparently. Phenomenal trade deal. That's it. Three times as big as we're doing now. Uh, God, we're tying it all together here. But, but, but I, I'm more concerned about the buybacks. And I think that's what the market's saying. Have we got the ammo to do more buybacks? I guess. But I, I even myself, who tends to be a, an, an economic optimist, I am quite concerned okay. now by the unpredictability of recent actions from the president that will cool investment. So they won't be doing buybacks, but they also may not be investing, and more importantly, be, may not be hiring as robustly as sure. they were. And that, to me, is a more fundamental concern than even just the lack of buybacks. Brilliant. Thank you, Michelle. Right, we're going to come back to you throughout the next uh, 47 minutes, exactly. Uh, we're going to take a very short break. Lots of interesting data we're going to run you through a little bit later on. But the president, as we just mentioned, hails a phenomenal phenomenal post-Brexit trade deal with the United Kingdom, but sparks concerns over the future of the National Health Service. Uh, more after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. The President, Mr Trump, and Prime Minister Theresa May hinted at a possible trade deal between the US and the UK after the UK leaves the European Union. Mr Trump highlighted the ties between Britain and America and hailed the benefits of a potential trade agreement. Our nations have more than $1 trillion invested in each other's economics. The United Kingdom is America's largest foreign investor in our largest European export market. That's a lot of importance. As the UK makes preparations to exit the European Union, 
the United States is committed to a phenomenal trade deal between the U.S. and the U.K. There is tremendous potential in that trade deal. I say probably two and even three times of what we're doing right now. Tremendous potential. Seventy-five years ago this Thursday, courageous Americans and British patriots set out from this island toward history's most important battle. They stormed forward out of ships and airplanes, risking everything to defend our people and to ensure that the United States and Britain would forever remain sovereign and forever remain free. Mr. Trump also suggested everything would be on the table during trade negotiations, including Britain's National Health Service. However, Trump later backtracked on the statement, telling ITV he does not consider the NHS to be a bargaining chip. I don't see it being on the table. Somebody asked me a question today, and I say everything's up for negotiation because everything is. But I don't see that being — that's something that I would not consider part of trade. That's not trade. Trump also predicted the U.S. and U.K. would reach an agreement over intelligence sharing and Huawei. Uh, Hadley is near Winfield House, the U.S. ambassador's residence in Regent's Park, and has more. Hadley. Hey, good morning, guys. So essentially what we heard over the last couple of days, as you know, is again and again, uh, President Trump lauding this visit as a serious success, not just for his presidency, but also for the special relationship between the United Kingdom and, of course, the United States. But one thing that seems to come up again and again, in spite of all of the uh, excitement, seemingly, from the president surrounding the potential for a trade deal with the United Kingdom is, of course, concerns over security. Now, I had a chance to catch up in an exclusive interview uh, with the U.S. ambassador to NATO, and I asked her about how worried she is when it comes to Huawei. Listen in. We have learned so much just in the last year about what Huawei will do to the security of our networks, the risk to the security of our networks. And of course, in NATO, we want interoperable secure communications because it is most important that we can talk to our allies, especially in a time of crisis, without any interruptions. So uh, we're very concerned that Huawei uh, has the capability to disrupt those uh, communications that must be secure. And we are, I think, a little bit behind the ball on addressing this issue. But I think our NATO allies are all uh, now trying to look for ways that we can uh, get a better more secure, more trustworthy communication system for all of our NATO allies. In terms of that conversation that you're having specifically with the United Kingdom, how much leeway do you have here, do you think? Because there has been so much movement in the last several months toward a, a, a relationship with Huawei and thereby the Chinese government when it comes um, to Britain itself, because at the end of the day, this is about their economic opportunities as well, isn't it? Well, it is. It is wrapped up in economic interests, but I think that we we don't know everything we need to know about how we would be able to work with outside systems and what we would have to have that would be documented secure systems. And I I think we're not sure about the technology capabilities yet, but we do know that Huawei it is a company uh, that China can require to give uh, information about customers that in a normal contract situation with other 
telecommunications companies would not be the case. They would be secure. And we are looking for ways to allow economic uh, success for UK or American companies and and capabilities and competition. Uh, But the first and foremost uh, security um, priority is that it not be able to be penetrated outside of the normal contract situation between the two countries or the two companies that are uh, trying to put in a network that is going to be the future of our telecommunications networks for probably the next five to ten years. That's U.S. Ambassador to NATO becoming just the latest member of the Trump administration this week to take a swing at Huawei, to take a swing at the Chinese government. Of course, we heard from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, in a statement taking out uh, what seemed to be a a major position when it comes to freedoms in China and, of course, the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. But this is something, of course, that isn't going to go away. We heard back in March um, the head of European or U.S. Central Command in Europe essentially coming out and attacking the Germans on this as well, guys, because it's about data sharing. It's about intelligence, about maintaining the special relationship, as they say again and again, between the United States and the United Kingdom, but it's also spinning it forward to NATO allies as well, because this isn't the first uh, opportunity, really, for these NATO member countries to sort of move outside of the box when it comes to operability in terms of uh, data sharing, intelligence sharing, but also in terms of those weapon systems as well. I had the chance, I have to mention, uh, to ask the ambassador about what's going to happen with this S-400 missile defense uh, system coming out of Russia. And the Turks again and again have said, not only are we purchasing this, but we're also going to head with uh, the procurement of this. And she said to me, you know, if they're going to do this, they're not going to get those F-35s, and that's going to continue to cause major problems within the NATO alliance. So spinning it forward to the next couple of days and the conversations that European leaders will potentially be having with Mr. Trump, definitely security in Huawei, probably on the table. Guys. Excellent work there. Thank you, as ever, Hadley. Right, let's go back to Michelle. Um, Michelle, we'll talk about broader trade implications after the break. Um, but in terms of US and UK as well, I mean, again, the, the economic picture, despite Brexit on this side of the Atlantic, is no worse than the rest of Europe. By some measures, it's slightly better. But there are right. the other ramifications of what's going on that you're concerned about on both sides of the right. Atlantic. Right. Well, and you, know, you had mentioned earlier about the similarities between the U.S. and the U.K. economy. And I have to say, when I talk to people about the impact of these trade wars on the U.S., I, there's a lot of parallels, I feel like, to the impact of on the U.K. economy of Brexit in that, you know, initially it didn't seem like there was really much negative impact because the consumer has done well here in the U.K., especially initially when we when after the vote, you saw the currency weaken, the economy almost looked fine. Everyone was like, well, what's sort of the big deal? But the underlying impact is is a little bit more insidious. The business weakness, the decline in business investment uh, that you're seeing. I feel like in the U.S. it could be very parallel, where the consumer continues to look pretty okay because the labor market is is healthy, the wage numbers are doing better. But what's happening in the U.S. is the underlying impact of uncertainty on business activity. And it's very parallel, and it ends up having a a more gradual, drawn-out adverse effect on the economy. So, again, you can't sort of be fooled because the consumer looks okay if the underlying, you know, 
Pillars is, 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 where is here in the UK because of Brexit? I mean, when you talk about the US, there's a fear about tariffs, whether they increase again or whether there's more against right. other countries or whether they come right back because it's in everybody's interest. When it comes to the UK, there is Brexit, which could be a hard Brexit at this point, depending on what happens on leadership. It could be a soft Brexit, right. could be a Remain vote. Are those variables much harder for the investor community to contend with? But I would even step back and say the biggest overwhelming <clears throat> issue is just uncertainty. How do companies operate in an environment where there is so much uncertainty and the cooling effect that that has on investment and on hiring, on these activities that you need to actually paint a better picture for sustained growth going forward. So they're both challenges and I think in both cases it's the same issue that that is a strong headwind for both economies. It's this overwhelming sense of, of uncertainty that causes businesses to just say let's wait and see what happens. Michelle, thank you very much for staying with us, our guest host for this hour of the show. On day three of Trump's visit to the UK, we will see the president travel to Portsmouth in southern England, take part in D-Day commemorations. He is then scheduled to hold a reception with other European leaders after the event. Later in the day, he'll head to Ireland, where he will meet with Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar. So, very full agenda. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.